through 16. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Thank you so very much for being here this morning and for those of you who are joining us online. Let's jump right into our text. The easy part of Hebrews chapter 11 is to appreciate the fact that all of these people that are mentioned, and there are quite a few names in this chapter, all of them live their lives by faith. You'll see that phrase over and over and over again in chapter 11, by faith. And you'll find someone's name that follows that phrase. And then as we pointed out just a few weeks ago, there's always a verb of action. They all reflected their faith by something they did. Specifically in the text that Jeff just read, the Bible indicates that uh, by faith Abraham did what he did. Specifically, it says that when he was called to go to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went. And then the language is, and I absolutely love the way this is stated, even though he did not know where he was going. I preached on this uh, particular text some years ago when I was preaching in Atlanta. And I was really hammering on the fact that Abraham went to a place that he did not know where he was going. And I said, think about that. There were no maps. You know, you couldn't go to AAA and say, could you give me directions to where I'm going? There were no GPSs that would get you where you're going. So Abraham simply left home by faith because he did not know what the ultimate destination was going to be. And then in a personal kind of an aside, I said, uh, that really is my theme for life. I am navigationally challenged. And uh, so really my, my motto for life has been, he did not know where he was going. Well, that afternoon, one of the good sisters who did cross-stitching cross-stitched me and then brought to me that night a framed uh, cross-stitch that says he did not know where he was going. I still have it. But notice the text. It goes on to say that by faith he made his home in the promised land, just like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, of course, who were heirs along with him of the same promise. I think that there's another thing that you'll see that is replete in this chapter, and that is the sense of disenfranchisement that God's people felt. They did not feel that they belonged to this world and I think a part of that is, is indicative of why that they lived by faith. They realized that this, this world is not my home, as we just sang. The last line, I think, is absolutely profound that Jeff read a moment ago, where, where it says, For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You know, since he's contemplating the heavenly, you might think that the author would say that we're looking for a city that, uh, that doesn't have foundations. 
because we're not thinking in physical terms. But I, I think the author there perhaps is, is really wanting to drive home the permanence of this heavenly city. You, you think that you live in a house that has a slab or a foundation under, wait till you get to heaven. There's going to be a place that will never grow old. You'll never have to worry about maintenance on the house that you're going to, in the mansion that you're going to live in in that place. So all of these people here in Hebrews chapter 11, were, the Bible says, were living by faith when they died. They were in it for the long haul. They recognized, they appreciated. Someone is defined, by the way, faith as taking God at his word. And I think you'll see that true of every one of these people who are mentioned. So they did not receive the things that they'd been promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were aliens and strangers on earth. There again is that sense of disenfranchisement. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. And I think as as Todd pointed out in our class this morning on this same text, that these folks realized that that they didn't belong here. And that as Israelite people, that they, for the most of them, they'd never really had a place to call their own. They, they lived 40 years in the wilderness wandering. They lived in, in one kind of exile to the other. And, and, and now the writer is talking about how that they, through, through the telescope of inspiration, were looking for a place that they had not yet seen, but that they were longing for and that they recognized was going to be a place where they could have their name on the mailbox, if you know what I mean. So if they had been thinking of the country they had left, the writer says, and I I appreciate the pragmatism of this, if they had been only concerned about the country that they left, whether that was Egypt or some other place, they would have had the opportunity to return. And we know if you've read the book of Exodus that they, some of them wanted to do that. Let's go back and let's die and at least be buried in a familiar grave back in Egypt. But they could have done that if, they, if that had been their desire. If we just want to turn around, backtrack, and go back to where we came from. But by faith, they recognized that there was a place much better than this. Let me begin this discourse this morning, if I may, by pointing out the obvious We are also living in a time where we need to look through the eye of faith and to see the fact that God has prepared for his people a place that we have not seen with the physical eye, but through through our faith and through our hope and through our joyful anticipation of the fulfillment of the promises of God to know that there is a land that is fairer than day. They were looking for a better country, the author says, a heavenly one. So let me illustrate, if I may, one of the most enduring mysteries of nature, and this is going to come off sounding like I've been watching too much of the Animal Planet channel, but, uh, but hang with me for a moment, is, is how do geese and seals and, and whales and salmon and all sorts of, of other creatures make these long, difficult journeys, sometimes thousands of miles or more, in order to go home. Without a compass or a map, somehow they just unerringly make their way year after year back to the exact same precise spot on the globe. They're driven and guided by some instinctive motivation. They make the determination and then the journey to go home. Do animals make their migratory journey by memory? Researchers wanted to know. If so, then how do you explain such creatures like the eels who go back sometimes thousands of miles to a place, watch this carefully, that they have never seen? So it's not by memory. It's something else that drives them. 
This homing instinct is, is one of the most powerful in all of nature, and researchers all agree on that fact. The only answer that we can give to those questions is that God has instilled in a multitude of his creatures the way back to their own true home. And let me submit for your consideration this morning that the creator has placed that same instinct in us. That there is something in us that recognizes the fact that this is not my one true home. When we're true to our God-given nature, there is an internal compass in every human being, a longing in our soul, if you will, deep in our being for a home that we've never seen before. Now, God wants his people to come home. That is one of the clarion calls that you will find throughout Scripture. You see, we're created for a perfect fellowship with our Father. That's how he first created us. Adam and Eve was in the garden. They walked in perfect union and unity with their God. They had sweet communion with the Heavenly Father who created them. The Bible even says that they walked with God in the cool of the evening. And you can go back and read the earlier chapters of the book of Genesis to know that that's so. We were never intended to exist in in a sinful, fallen world such as the one that we're in. So back in the garden, we we see that exemplified and, and portrayed to us in a very powerful way. Before things got so confused, Adam and Eve enjoyed that that personal communion with their creator. But then after they sinned, everything changed. That first couple was thrown out of the garden. The Bible says that God even placed an angel at the, at the gate of the garden so that they could not go back in. And ever since, human beings have had a longing to return, to, to regain what we once lost, to restore that fellowship with our Father. Said another way, we have a deep, deep desire to go home. I really think Solomon was hinting at that when he wrote Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, where he says in part that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. In his book or work called Confessions, Augustine described it very vividly when he said of God, and I'm quoting now, you have created us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. I think there's something to that. And then listen to Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 16. After describing the faith of such great heroes as as Abel and Enoch and, and Noah, it explains then why they did what they did. And I believe that question needs to be asked every time you find that phrase by faith and you see the person's name and then you see some chronicling of what they did with their lives, you have to ask why. But verse, verse 16 of Hebrews 11, I think, explains. The Bible says they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They will not be disappointed is his clear message. God has prepared for us a place. And Jesus alluded to that in a very direct way in the opening uh, verses of John chapter 14. I, I hope you caught all of that, that there's a longing of the soul. And just as the salmon are, are driven to swim upstream, just as the, Capist- uh, just as the swallows return to Capistrano every year, right on the exact same day, so there is within the human heart, there is an innate drive, a desire within us, to go back home. And the writer of Hebrews chapter 11 says, these great men and women of old lived as they did. They achieved their victories by faith because they were, they were homesick for heaven. 
And I can no more explain that than I can explain why geese fly south in the winter. But I can describe it for you within the context of Abraham's life. So stay with me for just a few minutes. There are three simple phrases that I see in this text that explains to us why these people did what they did. And while all of these years later, you and I are in a church building on a beautiful Sunday morning in 2022, affirming the same God, worshiping and glorifying and honoring him, gathering around this table to talk about what Jesus did for us that we could never do for ourselves because of that same longing, that same innate desire that God has placed within each of us. Notice these phrases, if you will, verse 8. Still in Hebrews 11, of course, verse 8 is the term called out. What causes the geese to decide that it's time to fly south? Well, it's the changing of the seasons. It's the chill in the air. It's the shortening of the days. It's the position of the sun. It's all of those things. But in the spiritual realm, what is it that awakens our spiritual homing instinct? Well, it begins when we long to hear the voice of God. When we respond with joy at the receiving of his word. When we began to allow his spirit to begin his work in us, we're called out of the world so that we can be prepared for the next world, I think is at least a part of what the Hebrews writer is communicating to us. After all, remember that the Greek word for church is ekklesia, which means the called out ones. We are called out of this world in a number of ways. But then the second phrase is found in verse 9. A stranger in a foreign country who lived in tents. You may remember back in the book of Genesis, the story of a, degree, a disagreement that Abraham had with his, with his nephew Lot, and how Abraham had a choice of, of, of locations and could have chosen the best grazing lands, could have settled down in Sodom, and could have lived out his life there, at least theoretically. But the Bible says that Abraham refused all of that. He refused to settle down. He refused to settle for what this life offers. In a word, he refused to, to compromise. And then Genesis 13, verse 10, the first part of that verse says, Lot saw, as he looked out over the land and as Abraham had given him the choice as to which land, which property, which real estate he opted to to own and, and to use for his cattle and for his flocks, Lot saw. Now that's from a temporal standpoint. And from that standpoint, his decision certainly made sense. I'm not going to have to worry about what I feed my animals probably for the rest of my life. My wife won't have to worry. My kids won't have to worry. We're set for life. But then chapter 13, verses 11 and 12 says, Lot chose. And you know that he chose incorrectly. He chose because he was looking at it through temporal eyes. He was not looking at it through the eyes of faith. And then in verse 13, we find the word wicked. Back to verse 10, the latter part of verse 10, it says, before the Lord destroyed. So if you know the history, the backstory behind this particular account, that that just means that that Sodom's judgment was hanging over it. And that doom was just around the corner. Lot did not know that when he made his choice. But Lot chose the path of ease and comfort and prosperity. And you know that the result was absolutely terrible. Abraham, on the other hand, who is found twice, he gets two mentions in Hebrews chapter 11, was a self-described traveler. He was a pilgrim long before John Wayne ever popularized that term. 
Abraham, the Bible says, chose to live in tents rather than to build a more permanent dwelling. Now, I don't know how many folks in this audience this morning have ever been camping. And I don't mean glamping. I mean the primitive kind of camping where you sleep on the ground or at least with only a, the, the shelter of a tent over you. And you know what that's like if you've enjoyed the great, enjoyed the great outdoors. I, by the way, I saw a comedian do an entire skit one time on why would anyone ever go camping? You got everything at home. You decide I'm going to give all that up and go spend a few nights under the stars. But if you've done that, you know it's great for a while, but living in a tent gets old quickly. And just ask the folks in South Florida. Amazingly, it's been 30 years. In 1992, after Hurricane Andrew came roaring through, more than 80,000 homes were totally destroyed. They were rendered unlivable. That means 160,000 people were suddenly homeless. And the army came in and they set up tent cities and the folks were glad to have a shelter for a while. But they soon discovered that living in a tent gets old really fast. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't take long before folks want to settle down. They crave the permanence of four walls. They want to have a floor under them. They want to have a roof over their heads. So why is it that in this text that the Bible emphasizes that Abraham spent his time living in tents? It isn't talking about real estate here, I think. I've, I think the reference here is, is to a spiritual reality. Not real estate, but to reality. Abraham remained intentionally apart, not quite belonging, a stranger in a foreign land. He refused to compromise his faith because he knew that this world was not permanent. It doesn't last. This world has a chef life. It has an expiration date clearly stamped on it. And no doubt this world is real, but let me tell you something. It is not as real as the one that is to come. First John two fifteen. love, John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For he who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In verse 17, he goes on to say, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the word of God lives forever. The next phrase to notice is verse 10, a city which has foundations. What's implied is that Abraham was dissatisfied with this world. You have to appreciate that, I believe, to get the real meaning out of the text. I really believe that's the implication of the text, that Abraham did not feel at home in this world anymore. Someone has said that an optimist is a person who would like to believe that this is the best of all possible worlds. And a pessimist is a person who's afraid he's right. Well, Christians are realists. We know that this is a fallen world. We know that this is a sinful and imperfect place. But we are hopeful realists because we believe that God has planned something for his people that is much better later on. Do you think Abraham was disillusioned by the roughness and the raggedness of this life? That he looked around and, and saw how much of his adult life he had spent on the road and, and sleeping under the stars, just as we talked about? Was, was he put off by the uncertainty of this world? Or is it more likely that when he was called by the voice of the Almighty and once he encountered the power of the living God in his life in a very personal way, that nothing that nothing was ever the same after that. One thing's for sure. When Abraham heard that voice, he answered it 
And watch this carefully. He never looked back. I believe that's true today. When a person, whether they're a man or a woman, ever gets eternity in their hearts, ever gets a foretaste of things divine, they're never the same again. I want us to notice three key words and then we're through. Because we need to ask the question, what does all of this mean to us? Surely this is more than just a history lesson. How can this fortify my own faith? The first one is found in verse 13. It's the word aliens. We live in a nation that's concerned about illegal aliens. Foreigners slipping into our country and we seem to be unable to maintain control of our own borders. But put the shoe on the other foot for just a moment. What if you were one of those aliens? What if you knew beyond a doubt that you did not belong and that you were not wanted? What if the people looked at you with suspicion and made it clear that you were not accepted and that you did not belong? I wonder this morning, and this is the spiritual realm part of it, have you ever felt uncomfortable? Have you ever felt out of step with others because of your faith? Not because of the color of your skin or because of your political standings, but because of your faith, you just just knew that you did not belong. I think it will forever be the lot of the Christian to be an outsider, to be an outlier, as it were. The earliest followers of Jesus felt that very keenly. An unknown disciple from the third century made this description of Christians. And I'm quoting, they live in their own homelands, but as foreigners. They share in everything as citizens, but endure everything as aliens. Every foreign country is their homeland, but every homeland is a strange country to them. They spend their time on the earth, but their citizenship really is in heaven. Does that not sound familiar? Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says, Colossians 3, 1 through 3. The second word I want us to notice is also in verse 13, and it's the word saw, S-A-W. You remember that Hebrews 11 verse 1 begins, one version of, of that definition of faith says this, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not appreciate that, of what you do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. I hope we appreciate all of what he just said in verse 1. Faith is the confident expectation, it is the joyful anticipation of the promises of God. Verse 3, you'll see the phrase, not seen. Notice how many times in this one chapter, the emphasis is upon the fact that our faith binds us, ties us to that which cannot be seen. Verse 3, not seen. Verse 7, not yet seen. Verse 27, talking about Moses, he saw him who was invisible. No wonder the world looks at God's people and scratches their heads. No wonder they can't understand why we do what we do and live the way we live and come and worship the way we worship. We hear a phrase sometimes in our vernacular, seeing is believing. But let me tell you something, after you read through Hebrews chapter 11, you'll come away saying, regarding the promises of God, that believing is seeing. And the last word, the last phrase really that I want us to focus on is again the one that is replete throughout the chapter. It's the two words, by faith. How can we be homesick for heaven when we've never been there? Verse 13 supplies the answer. It's by faith. I, I think this passage, if we will let it, 
can reorient our thinking completely. Somehow we've gotten the idea that what we can see here on this earth, that this is the reality while all the talk about heaven is just wishful thinking. When in fact it's the other way around. You know, when I was just a boy, I thought sermons about death were morbid. And I thought all of this talk and consideration of what was to come after death was kind of creepy and probably a bit unhealthy. I didn't understand it. But I have to tell you, after I've lived here for a number of years now in the here and now, I realize the limitations of this life and I realize the imperfections of this world. And when we're faced with the impermanence of this life and of the unpredictability of this life, then you really grow to appreciate what the Bible means about being homesick for heaven. This life is precious. There's no doubt about it. And we need to enjoy it as best we can and we need to use it for God's glory for as long as we can. But friends, let me say to you, don't ever trust this life completely. Don't ever put your full weight down in this world because you are not meant for a world like this. And sooner or later, this world will let you down. Second Peter 3 says there will come a time when the earth and all that is in it will be burned up. And that's because God has put a home, homing instinct in every one of us. So please don't let the world drown it out. There is a land that is fairer than day. And by faith we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. I wonder this morning, are you homesick for heaven? If not, why not? I want to go there. And I want more than anything for all of you to go as well. But if you're not a child of God this morning, allow us to help you. As you turn your back on sin and repentance, confess Jesus as God's son. We'll be delighted to baptize you into Christ. His blood will wash away every one of your sins. Do it now while we stand and while we sing.